Walter Sports Bar is the spot to watch the NFL in the Navy Yard neighborhood. They preset all indoor TVs and seat first come, first served. Visit waltersdc.com slash NFL for more information. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Weems deals. Swing a fly ball toward the gap right center field. This is trouble. It will not be caught. And it is one up off the fence and will give the Dodgers the lead. Hernandez scores. Altman right behind him. And in second with a go-ahead two-run double is Chris Taylor. And the seesaw game tilts back in the Dodgers' favor. They lead it 6-5. to five. Ferrer, the young lefty to the belts. Here's his first pitch. Swing a line drive center field. That's down for a base hit. Freeman racing around third, trying to score. Heading for third is Smith. The throw there by Young is not in time. And the Dodgers now lead it 8-5. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, September 9th, 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We are taping this installment of the show in the early morning hours of Saturday. This often 8-5 Nats loss to the National League West leading Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park on Friday night in game one of a three-game series in a game that featured a rain delay of an hour and 34 minutes. This was the Nats' ninth loss in 11 games. But, you know, perhaps taping this show in these early morning hours will somehow provide clarity, provide wisdom with everything else (laughs) that is going on with the Nats right now. We, over the last 48 hours, have had an avalanche of reports and rumors and developments with the Nats off the field, continuing this multi-week stretch during which there has been a lot going on with the Nats off the field. There is the Steven Strasburg mess, including the team's managing principal owner, Mark Lerner, putting out a statement on Friday evening. There is a Nats front office in chaos, including now the reassignment of yet another longtime Mike Rizzo guy, Chris Klein. And we have a report from Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic with uh, multiple notable items. Uh, There's a lot going on. Mark, you know, we had August in which uh, so much of the month was so good for the Nats. And now we have this month of September in which uh, so much is not going well. And there now really is some ugliness both on and off the field. It's been quite the dramatic departure from where things stood not that long ago, like 10 days ago. It seemed like they were in their best position that they had been in in a long time and reason to be excited and optimistic as uh, anyone had been in a couple of years. And to see it flip like this, both the on-field performance, not that that matters as much in the larger picture, but obviously they're not playing well on the field. And then to have all the other stuff now come out about what's going on behind the scenes, it really is a dramatic shift in narrative for this team. And I don't know, I'm interested when this all wraps up, there's still three weeks to go. I'll be interested what the tone is at the end of all this, at the end of the season. What are we going to be saying about 2023 for the Nationals? Is it going to be positive? Is it going to be negative? Is it going to be a combination of the two things? I'm not exactly sure at this point how we're going to feel about this. I think there is a lot of uncertainty with a lot of stuff right now with this team, no doubt. So with the game on Friday night, Mackenzie Gore was an ad starting pitcher. First time in a while that we're able 
to say that. Gore on Friday night made his first start in 10 days. He was on the bereavement list from August 31st to September 5th. But as we had talked about on the podcast, him not pitching for a while also worked in accordance with this idea of, you know, a workload limit for him this season. Well, Mackenzie Gore, in making his first start in 10 days, lasted for just four innings. He allowed four runs in the four innings, gave up six hits, three home runs, and three singles, issued two walks, did have four strikeouts, but he, over the four innings, threw a whopping 89 pitches. Uh, Gore, in this outing, did deal with a nagging blister. But top of the first, allowed two runs on a two-out, two-run opposite field home run by J.D. Martinez to right center. Top of the third, Gore did put forth a pretty impressive escape act here. Runners on first and second, two outs, generated a swinging strikeout of J.D. Martinez. That was good. But then in the top of the fourth came two more home runs. Gore allowed two runs on a leadoff homer by Max Muncy to the third deck in right field to tie the game at three and a one-out full count solo homer by Kike Hernandez to left field for a 4-3 Dodgers lead. We have talked about Gore and Josiah Gray and how each guy for a while now has not been pitching as well as each guy had been pitching early in the season. Gore has not been as bad as Gray has been. Gore has been very up and down. Some starts he's been good, other starts not so much. It was hard to know what exactly to anticipate from him in this outing on Friday night, but obviously the results were not particularly good. Well, and I think we have seen a developing pattern with him. He doesn't last very long. His pitch count gets up there and he's getting knocked out early. And not that it's ever a good night for your starter to go only four innings, but in the first game of a 17-game stretch without an off day until you get to the final week of the season, that's just the last thing you wanted to see from Gordon. Now, some of that was the blister. You mentioned it did open up on him again, and maybe he could have gone one more inning if not for that. But it's not like the performance really was screaming that he needed to stay out there any longer. Three home runs allowed, long counts. You give the Dodgers some credit. These are tough hitters. It's a tough matchup. They know how to work the count and you know extend at bats. But still, way too many pitches up in the zone. And his misses, as he acknowledged afterwards, were way off, just giving them the ability just to take those pitches without even having to think about it. And I don't know if this is just end of the season and the workload's catching up to him and we're seeing this kind of thing. But boy, it would be nice to at least see one more really good Mackenzie Gore start before the season's over. Again, we're talking about what's the narrative going to be at the end of this season. There was a point this year that I would have said, boy, what an impressive year for Mackenzie Gore. Yeah, a bit erratic start to start, but boy, those good starts were really good. And this looks like a future ace. And we may still feel that way at the end, but those great starts are feeling more and more removed And you hate to see it end with the guy with an ERA in the mid fours. And you're not really thinking that much about those handful of dominant starts that he had earlier in the year. Yeah, Gore now on the season, 27 starts, ERA of 442. It was such a pleasure to watch Mackenzie Gore and Josiah Gray earlier this season. And I know for me, like the last, you know, month, month and a half, two months, it's no longer the same pleasure. Like these starts for Gray and Gore are tough watches. High pitch counts, a lot of walks, a lot of laboring, you know, guys not lasting for very long. It has not been what it was earlier this season. So, you know, the hope clearly still would be that each guy can somehow right himself to at least some extent before the end of this season. But the more we go along here, the more it kind of feels like this probably is what is, is going to be for these guys as the season wraps up, that they're kind of stumbling to the finish line and just a matter of like how much more stumbling do we see. But with Gore lasting for just four innings on Friday night, That, in conjunction with the rain delay, led to something that was like the absolute last thing that you wanted to see if you're a Nats fan, given that the Nats do not have another scheduled off day here for weeks now. Davey Martinez on Friday night used six relief pitchers. The six relievers combined to allow four runs in five innings. The first four of the relievers combined to allow four runs in two innings. You know, if not for Amos Willingham tossing two and a third scoreless innings, This really could have been something. Mason Thompson, Robert Garcia, Jordan Weems, and Jose A. Ferrer combined to allow four runs in two innings. This was like the classic thing of, can anyone just get some outs here? These were some rough outings. Mason Thompson, top of the fifth, faced four batters, got just one out. Robert Garcia 
had an odd outing. He came into the game top of the fifth, bases loaded, one out, was terrific in this spot, induced a pop out by the Dodgers number five batter Max Muncie, then generated a call strikeout of the Dodgers number six batter Ahmed Rosario. But then Garcia in what ended up being a four-run six for the Dodgers, gave up a leadoff single, then issued a walk. Jordan Weems came into the game. He officially allowed two runs in two-thirds of an inning. He in the four-run six gave up a one-out, two-run opposite field double by the UVA product. Chris Taylor on a 1-2 pitch. And then Jose A. Ferreira came into the game. He faced four batters, got just one out. He, on the first pitch that he threw, gave up a two-out RBI single by Max Muncie to center field for an 8-5 Dodgers lead to cap that four-run sixth. This was tough. And again, you know, this stretch of zero scheduled off days for weeks, six relievers used by Davey on Friday night. And it very nearly was going to be a seventh because Willingham, you noticed, had a fingernail issue himself and the trainer came out to look at him and work on it. And you thought, oh my God, if they have to pull him, the only guys left were Hunter Harvey and Kyle Finnegan. The last thing you want to do is pitch either of them trailing by three runs late in the game. Thankfully, Willingham was able to get that addressed and finished out the game. And a very underrated part of this game was what Willingham did to at least salvage the rest of the bullpen and, and allow the top two guys to be healthy and fresh and available Saturday if they need them. But it starts with Mackenzie Gore only going four. So you already know you're kind of in a tough spot. And then really, I think Mason Thompson set the tone. You want him to get through the fifth inning clean. And instead, he allows three out of the four batters he faces to reach. And David decides to pull him in the middle of the fifth inning. And so now you're matching up really early in the game. And Robert Garcia, like you said, did a really nice job to get out of that jam. The problem is he's only gone five innings now. And I think Davey didn't feel like he could already turn to another reliever for the sixth. So now we're going to ask Garcia, at least start the sixth. He can't finish it. Well, let's go to Weems. And there was this recurring pattern of somebody would come in, try to get out of an inning, but then have to be put back out there for another one. And they just were not able to sustain that. So it starts with the Gore outing being as short as it was. And then Thompson being really ineffective set this domino thing in motion that it really made it tough on everyone. And and it just really is not the way at all you want to manage a bullpen in a game like this. And I think Davey got stuck where he kind of had no choice but to try to keep squeezing a couple more outs out of each of them and then not able to get it and have to summon somebody else. Offensively speaking for the Nats in this uh, 8-5 loss to the Dodgers on Friday night, Nats scored five runs on just six hits, uh, worked one walk, uh, two for four with runners in scoring position. Three of the six hits were extra base hits, including two home runs, including a three-run homer. So this was good to see. The Dodgers offense is outstanding. The Dodgers hit a lot of home runs. And for a while here, it looked like we might have a uh, bit of a home run duel uh, between the Nats and the Dodgers. But we had the former Dodger, Cape Verde Ruiz. Uh, he in a three-run first for the Nats, connecting on a one-out three-run home run to right center field for a 3-2 Nats lead. And C.J. Abrams in a two-run fifth for the Nats had a two-run opposite field home run to left center field for a 5-4 Nats lead. Abrams also was key in that Nats three-run first. He had a leadoff single to right field and a steal of third base. Unfortunately, there wasn't much else going on for the Nats offensively beyond the two home runs. The Nats did have a double in this game. Jacob Young in that two-run fifth, a leadoff full count double off the bottom of the left center field wall despite having been down at 1.12 and despite having hurt a finger on his right hand on a bunted foul ball. Friday night, not a good night for Nationals players' fingers when you think about the Mackenzie Gore blister and also what happened with Jacob Young. But I saw what you tweeted about Kate Bert Ruiz, former Dodger. He has had some real success against the Dodgers in a brief period of time. So at the time of the uh, the first inning homer, the, his season totals against the Dodgers this year Five for 12 with four home runs. How about that? He had, and he had a big one at Dodger Stadium in a win. Remember that several months ago, earlier this summer. And this was a big one, you know, looked like it could be a big one to bounce back from the early deficit and give them the lead. The bottom first, he admitted he's a little extra motivated when he faces them. So good on him for acknowledging that. It's human nature. A team trades you away. You want to do well against them when you get a chance to face them. So good for him. For doing that, he didn't do anything else the rest of the night, and not much of anybody did anything else the rest of the night. After the Abrams homer in the fifth, 
They went 0 for 15, nobody reaching base the rest of the night. And especially when they returned from that long rain delay in the seventh inning, it felt like they had just decided this night's over. We're just going to make some quick outs and get out of here. And again, human nature, you understand it. Long night, you're tired. But boy, there were some quick and very unproductive at-bats over the final innings of this game. Hey, are you a law firm partner or an associate stuck on an underperforming franchise? Do what Nationals legend Max Scherzer did. Demand a trade. He left the New York Mets, right, and uh, ended up on a contender in the American League. There might be greener pastures and a lot more money at another law firm for you and your team at another law firm, not to mention better management and better services to offer your clients. The law firm lateral partner market is still red hot, and Nats Chat sponsor Mason Kalfas is the best legal recruiter in Washington, D.C., or anywhere. And Mason wants to help you find a new and better home. Mason Kalfas, he is the Scott Boris of legal recruiters. Put him to work for you. Mason will sit down with you and understand your practice and career or financial goals. He will confidentially discuss your candidacy with law firms that are contenders, not 60 win teams. You can reach Mason or any of his team of seven recruiters at 202-486-3535 or email Mason at mason at zenith legal.com. That's 202-486-3535 or via email at mason at zenithlegal.com. Go Nats! Uh, The Nats will be contenders very soon, and you can be a contender even sooner. The Game Time app is loaded this week with tons of local ticketing options, Nats, Commanders, DC United, Mystics, and a slew of concerts. If you want to get out of the house this weekend for one of these events, make sure to check the Game Time app. Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. It's the fastest growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. Get images of your seat before you buy so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive. And listeners, download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download game time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. Hey guys, Al Galdi here to tell you about Factor, which is offering a great deal for listeners of the Nats Chat podcast 50% off. September has arrived. Uh, That means even more of a focus on the Nats promising young players, but that also means that your busy life now is even busier. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. It can help you fuel up fast with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle. Too busy this fall to cook, but you want to make sure that you're eating well? Well, with Factor, uh, skip the extra trip to the grocery store and skip the chopping, the prepping, and the cleaning up too, while still getting the flavor and nutritional quality that you need. Go to factormeals.com slash NatsChat50 and use the code NatsChat50 for 50% off. One more time, factormeals.com slash NatsChat50 and use the code NatsChat50 to get 50% off. What sort of update can you provide, if any, on Steven Strasburg? Uh, uh, Strauss stance, you know, he's uh, he's not he's not doing anything baseball wise. I met with him yesterday. We had a good discussion. He's not going to be here today. He felt that he didn't want to distract you know, from uh, from the opening day festivities, and uh, he's just taking he's taking it day by day, and uh, and uh, you know, trying to you know, just get healthy. So we had the baseball, and now we arrive at the drama. (laughs) There are sort of two major portions of the drama that we're going to deal with here on the show. We'll get to the front office stuff in a bit, but there is also this Steven Strasburg stuff. So just to sort of synthesize what's been out there these last few days, we all know that Steven Strasburg is retiring. Now, nothing has ever been officially declared, but it has been sort of the worst-kept secret in baseball that Steven Strasburg is retiring. This goes back weeks. Remember, we had the reports a few weeks ago that Strasburg, in fact, had decided to retire. Well, 
We on Thursday afternoon had multiple reports that a Steven Strasburg retirement press conference for this Saturday, i.e. for the day on which this podcast is being published, had been called off. Now, the press conference was never formally announced, okay? It was never declared that a press conference was happening, but it was known behind the scenes that plans for a Strasburg retirement press conference had been in place. Per the reports, the presser was off because the team and Strasburg's camp, i.e. his agent, the uh, notorious Scott Boris, still were working out what is going to happen with the contract. And if you are a Nats fan and you hear the phrase, the contract, you know of what is being spoken. The seven-year, $245 million contract to which Steven Strasburg was re-signed in December 2019. Now, the tenor of the reporting has varied. Brittany Giroli, senior MLB writer for The Athletic, she on Thursday afternoon put out a series of tweets just blasting the Nats, in particular the owners, quote, it was the Nationals who approached Strasburg about retiring and paying him the full amount of his contract. Sources briefed on the matter say the team wants to change the terms, end quote. Another tweet, quote, Strasburg signed a 70-year, 245 mil deal after the 2019 World Series. He had nerve damage and is 100% disabled, offering a gracious retirement ceremony and then trying to change the terms is something, end quote. We also had from John Heyman, a longtime MLB insider for the New York Post and other outlets. And let's also be honest about this. John Heyman, known to be a guy with a very good relationship with Scott Boris, he had an item on Friday saying that Strasburg's family had actually come to D.C., for this retirement press conference. So there was that. There also was reporting from the Washington Post, which was a lot less harsh in terms of what's going on here with the Nats and Strasburg and the contract. So when the reports first came out that Strasburg was going to retire, we wondered about, well, this must mean that they've, or at least this could mean that some sort of an arrangement has been arrived at with the contract. Apparently not. So much was this a deal over the last 24, 48 hours that Mark Lerner put out a statement that came out on Friday evening. The statement read as follows. Steven Strasburg is and always will be an important part of the Washington Nationals franchise. We support him in any decision he makes and will ensure that he receives what is due to him. It is regrettable that private discussions have been made public through anonymous sources attempting to negotiate through the media. While we have been following the process required by the collective bargaining agreement, behind-the-scenes preparations for a press conference had begun internally. However, no such event was ever confirmed by the team or promoted publicly. It is unfortunate that external leaks in the press have mischaracterized these events. It is our hope that ongoing conversations remain private out of respect for the individuals involved. Until then, we look forward to seeing Steven Strasburg when we report to spring training. That was, I thought, an odd way to end the statement. So a lot to take in with this. What do you believe to be true about the Strasburg situation? Let's start just with this real quick, Al. You suggested the other day, and I think I agreed with you on this, that it would be very nice for Mark Lerner to make a public statement for the first time in a while and let us know what's going on with a variety of issues confronting the team. I wonder if in the end that was the right decision by Mark Lerner to do that or not, because this statement was not particularly well received, especially because of that last line that you just pointed out there with the, we'll see at spring training. We'll get to all that here in a moment. I think what's important here is to consider a couple of things. The information that's out there, you can imagine, would come from two different sides of this equation. There's the Steven Strasburg side, i.e. Scott Boris, and there is the Nationals side. And I think some outlets out there have tended to emphasize what they're getting from the Boris side of the equation, and others are maybe emphasizing what they're getting from the Nationals side of the equation. And as always, the truth lies somewhere in between the two. Every once in a while, one side is telling 100% the truth, and the other side is not at all. But most of the time, there's bits of truth within both of them. And our job as journalists is to try to figure out the closest thing we can to the truth that fits in between 
those two things somewhere. So my sense, talking to a lot of people, what I've gathered really over a long stretch of time, not just in the last couple of days. Number one, I think we all know this, that Steven Strasburg's decision to retire really was made quite a while ago. The realization had set in back in the spring when he tried to give it one more go and couldn't, that that was the end of the line. And as we've discussed on this podcast in the past, everything since then was really just going to be about the financial arrangement and how would they work it out. A reminder for everyone who doesn't know, MLB contracts are guaranteed. Player signs a deal for $275 million. He gets the $275 million, provided that he honors that contract. Now, here's the catch. If a player voluntarily retires at any point, he forfeits the rest of the contract. Unless he is debilitated by injury and unable to perform his duties as a ball player, and that's where we are in this case, obviously. So we knew with about $105 million left that's owed to him over three years, you knew that it wasn't just going to be as simple as the national saying, yep, yeah, we'll, we'll still pay you all that, we're good, everything's fine. And it wasn't as simple as Strasburg or Bohr saying, hey, you know what, out of the graciousness of our heart, we feel bad about how this all worked out, we're just going to give back all that money. No, there was going to have to be something worked out between the two sides to make this work. And I assumed, and I guess inaccurately, and I think a lot of people felt the same way, that once the news of the retirement decision a couple of weeks ago got out, and let's be clear, that wasn't dug up by anyone. That was put out there by people who wanted it put out there because they believed it was a done deal. We all thought, okay, the financial arrangement must have been worked out. And so they did it. And I don't know what the terms were. But I figured it's probably something along the lines of them paying him all or close to all that he's owed, but maybe spreading it out over a longer period of time. Well, I guess in the end, those I's had not been dotted and the T's had not been crossed. And now here we are where in the days leading up to what we were told was likely to be a press conference on Saturday, but never formally told us that was going to happen. You got the sense that I don't know if this thing's actually going to happen as planned. And sure enough, by Thursday, they were acknowledging that it wasn't going to happen. So we'll just leave you all. <laughs> um, there's a lot of stuff that still has to be worked out here, to be sure. I don't expect there to be a formal announcement for a while now as they try to figure this all out of how it's going to go down. But if anybody believes that we're going to see Steven Strasburg in West Palm Beach in February, and that he's somehow going to give it another go and try to continue his rehab from this injury. Um, I don't think you really get grasp what's going on here. That's not an option. This is posturing by Mark Lerner. And pretty clearly, though he didn't name Scott Boris in that statement, he's talking to and about Scott Boris. Somehow, these two parties have to work this out between now and then and figure out a way to do this that satisfies everyone and doesn't destroy a relationship that has been really solid for more than a decade between the two parties. Well, the one thing that nobody wants to see is this Strasburg situation to turn ugly. That's like the last thing that you want. And what has happened over the last 24, 48 hours has been ugly. And so you wonder if we're getting to that point, a point again, that nobody ever wanted to arrive at. There's so much here that is so fascinating. So, you know, for years, of course, we've had the Lerner's-Scott Boris relationship. And we know that Scott Boris was especially tight with Ted Lerner. And for those who remember the Dylan Cruz press conference, Scott Boris got emotional talking about how he wanted Dylan Cruz to meet Annette Lerner. And now you have Mark Lerner basically calling out Scott Boris in a statement for leaking stuff to the media, which everyone knows that Boris does. And all agents do that. I mean, that's not exclusive to Boris, but I just find that almost comical. A few weeks ago, Boris is crying about, you know, Dylan Cruz meeting Annette Lerner. And now we have Boris leaking stuff that makes the learners look bad and Mark Lerner firing back with this statement that came out on Friday. So, so much for the learners and Boris being kumbaya, you know, in terms of Strasbourg. So most people listening know this in case you don't. He is said to have severe nerve damage. This came out in a report from the Post back on June 3rd, severe nerve damage. The idea of him ever pitching again is pie in the sky. That's not happening. When that was put in that statement by Mark Lerner, that last line 
of we look forward to seeing Strasburg report to spring training. Look, I'm not someone who is like easily offended. I'm not one of these people that gets all up in arms about any little thing that can be perceived as offensive. But I tell you, that was kind of an ugly line to put in there. That almost was like, I don't want to say mocking Strasburg, but that was mentioning something that we all know cannot happen. He is not physically able to do that. So, you know, that to me is not something you put in a statement like that. I did not like that. I did not think that reflected well on Mark Lerner. You know, that almost was offensive. Like, why are you putting that out there? He can't pitch right now. You know, it's been said he he can barely shake hands, hold his kids. Like, you don't put something like that in a statement. So I thought that was ill-advised. I don't know if Mark Lerner put that statement together himself. I don't know if a lawyer did that or what. But uh, I thought that was especially strange for that to be in the mix right there. So do you think that we're going to get a retirement press conference at any point before the end of this season? Or do you think this is something that is going to linger into the offseason? It would have to happen pretty quickly. And it would have to involve a significant simmering down of temperatures that are obviously running really hot right now. So I have my doubts that they can get it done before the end of the season. Doesn't mean it can't happen in the offseason. And you know, whether it's a press conference or just a, a statement or an announcement, whatever that is, it doesn't really matter at this point. That part is all PR. And ultimately, look, they're going to retire Steven Strasburg's jersey. He is one of the most important players, if not the most important player in Nationals history. So I think that all will happen here at some point. But I think they're running out of time for that to happen before the end of the season. And I am sure... <laughs> In the coming days, we're going to hear more from Boris's side in response to that last line of the statement that you mentioned. And look, I thought up to that last paragraph, no matter who you believe is right in this or or what you believe Strasburg deserves to be paid or not, I thought it was appropriate what Mark said up to that point. And I thought it was appropriate for him to make a statement and try to you know resolve or at least give their side of what's going on here. But that last line, it caught a lot of people off guard when they read it. And you thought, wow, did he really just say that? Now, let's be clear what he's insinuating with that. If the idea is that Steven Strasburg, i.e. Scott Boris, wants every penny of the $105 million that he's still owed in his contract, then Mark Lerner's essentially saying, okay, if you want to be paid in full, then you have to continue to be a ball player. And that means rehabbing and showing a good faith attempt at trying to come back from this injury, which, by the way, we all acknowledge is not recoverable from, <laughs> which is you know what adds to this all makes it kind of outrageous to even suggest that this would happen. But that's the, I guess, legal posturing of it to say, okay, fine, you want all your money. Well, then you have to do your part now to earn it. And I don't think that's feasible in any way. Let's also just point out like, even from the national standpoint, there's not a lot of logic to trying to push for any of that to happen. If Steven Strasburg does not retire, at the end of the season, they have to add him back to the 40-man roster, and he would have to spend the entire offseason on the 40-man roster, taking up a spot that needs to go to someone else who's actually a part of the organization and has a chance to be a part moving forward, whether that's a major leaguer or a minor leaguer who has to be protected those are precious spots in the offseason. And to waste it on somebody who you know is done with his career does not help the Nationals in any way. So I want to believe that cooler heads will prevail here and they will figure something else out before it gets too far along the line that despite whatever posturing there is there and what they're trying to insinuate about him, in theory, staying on the roster and on the 60-day IL for the next three years so that he can earn all his money it doesn't do the Nationals any good to do that. It wastes a roster spot to do that. Here's your Dylan Cruz update for the game played Friday evening in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Cruz was back in center field, but nonetheless 0 for 4 as the leadoff hitter, now averaging a buck 73 in double A. Harrisburg was shut up by the curve, 6 to zip. Now back to Mark and Al.
So there is the increasingly ugly situation between the Nationals and Steven Strasburg, and there is the increasingly tumultuous situation with the Nationals front office. This Monday will mark three weeks since we first had the reports that the Nats and their president of baseball operations and general manager Mike Rizzo were close to finalizing a contract extension. Of course, there still is no extension. It was last Saturday morning, September 2nd, that we learned that the Nationals' longtime international scouting director, Johnny DePuglia, had resigned. It was this past Wednesday evening that we had multiple reports of the Nats having made significant cuts to their scouting department. And by the way, since those initial reports on Wednesday evening, more has come out that the number of scouts being cut, it's not like six or eight. It's now being said to be like 12 or 15. A lot of guys are being told that they are not being brought back. And what's also out there now is that it's not necessarily that these people are being replaced. I think there had been this presumption that, okay, people are being cut, but others will be brought in. Now it's being said, and again, right now, there's a lot of speculation and reporting as opposed to like actual official declarations, but it may be that these people are being cut and they're not all going to be replaced. So with all of that as a backdrop, we got this from Washington Post columnist Barry Verluga on Friday afternoon. The Nats are moving their assistant general manager and vice president of scouting operations, Chris Klein, into a new role of special assistant to Mike Rizzo. Anyone who has been a sports fan for any period of time knows that when you reassign someone, especially into a role of special assistant, that is a demotion. And you're essentially putting someone off to the side because you no longer value that person the way that you once did. Chris Klein, he was hired by the Nats in the fall of 2006. He spent the next three seasons, 07 through 09, as a cross-checker for the Nats, and then was promoted to director of scouting in October 2009. Chris Klein and Johnny DePuglia had been two big-time massive forces in the Nats front office for a decade plus. Chris Klein essentially had presided over Nationals drafts since being promoted to director of scouting. I mean, Mike Rizzo ultimately has made the calls on these drafts, but Klein has been like the right-hand man for Rizzo with these drafts. We, of course, have talked so much about the Nationals' ineptitude with the MLB draft for about a decade now. We had wondered, you know, is Chris Klein at any point going to take the fall for this? And apparently, this now is happening. So we have DePuglia out. We have Klein being reassigned. We have Rizzo still without an extension. We also had this on Friday. This came out Friday morning, actually before the uh, Chris Klein news, a report from MLB insider Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic. Rosenthal in the report said, quote, the Nationals who remain for sale at a time of diminished revenue are in a volatile place, end quote. Rosenthal in the report also wrote of why perhaps the learners and Rizzo still have not agreed on an extension. Now, one of the things that's out there is that Rizzo is not getting the length of deal that he is looking for. In terms of why, Rosenthal speculated, quote, Rizzo can be mercurial according to national sources who spoke on condition of anonymity in exchange for their candor. The team was slow to embrace analytics and has struggled to develop pitching. And Rizzo's current staff, without question, is a tad bloated. The Nationals directory currently lists 12 special assistants to the GM, a number rival execs find astonishing. Half of them are not getting renewed, end quote. And again, this came out before the Klein news. And (laughs) like I just said, Klein is set to be a special assistant uh, to GM. Interesting that the Rosenthal report actually had some negative stuff on Rizzo per sources. There's a lot of stuff right now about sources saying this, sources saying that. There's a lot of leaking that's going on right now, which is always something you get when a situation turns ugly. But wow, that's a whammy that Chris Klein is being reassigned within the organization. I think as we discussed the other day with John DePuglia and with other moves, I I said I would not be surprised if there is more to come if this is just part of a larger reorganizing and changing of a lot of aspects of their front office. And I think scouting, clearly they were making changes in the Latin American department. They've made changes in the pro scouting department. And I just wondered, well, amateur scouting would seem to be something that they would want to look at as well, given the longstanding track record, as we've said, of struggles by them to draft and develop quality big leaguers for quite a while now. So 
I've felt like for a long time that Chris Klein is a name that could very much be in danger. Now, he didn't lose his job altogether. He's still staying in the organization, just being moved to a different role. And yeah, it's a demotion, obviously, from a, a role that he has done most of his life has been essentially amateur scouting for the purpose of the draft. And he's not going to be doing that anymore. A few things here. Given what we've seen from their struggles to draft and develop at both the college, high school levels and on the international front, I think it's perfectly appropriate to look at this and say, should changes be made? Maybe it's time to try something different and get some new personnel in there. So you can look at each individual case and wonder, was this appropriate or not? And whether they're cutting positions or just hiring new people, we'll find out eventually how that all shakes out. But I, I don't think it's wrong or inappropriate to look at those departments and say, can we do better than we have done? Okay. So that's number one. Number two is that I think what you heard there in that Rosenthal report, that there is something to this idea that Mike Rizzo has had a lot of people working for him for a long time, some very close confidants, some people whose backgrounds are really rooted in scouting. They have analytics people. Yes, they have younger guys on the staff who, who help in other ways, but really his guys are these longtime scouts that he believes in. And they have more of those types than probably any organization in baseball. So again, I think it's appropriate to ask, is that the right way to proceed or are there ways to change some of this and reduce the number of those kind of assistants and maybe devote those resources to something else or a different type of front office personnel? It's hard to know without really knowing yet who the replacements are, how many there are, what the roles are going to be, how this all shakes out. So I don't want to say anything for sure until we know that, which may not come until sometime in the offseason. I'll just say I'm not terribly surprised by a lot of that, that while it comes across as harsh and it seems like there's some massive changes going on and they are significant, I think some of these things maybe had been due for a while and it kind of has come to a head here this year. Now, I think the flip side of that also then is what exactly does that mean for Mike Rizzo? And his future is not signed yet. I still tend to believe that they're going to work something out here that he and the learners kind of need each other. And there's no alternative here that makes sense for either part of the equation. And so eventually they're going to work it out. And I think some of this is the learner saying to Rizzo, okay, you want to stay? Well, we're going to ask you to make some changes to your staff, right or wrong. I think something will get worked out there in the end. I don't think that that relationship that's been standing for a long time is going to be broken up over this. I also don't think you would reassign somebody like Chris Klein to another position in the organization and say he's going to be a special assistant to the GM and then get rid of the GM who he now is working for. You're going to hire a new GM and Chris Klein is his special assistant. That doesn't seem to me to be the path you would take towards this. But until anything's actually done, it's not done. What is so wacky to me is, like, no doubt, the Nats drafting for so long has been bad. The player development has been bad. We've hit on that so much on this show. If you were going to address that, shouldn't you have addressed that two years ago when you went off on this uh, voyage that is the rebuild and it hit everyone who was paying attention that the team had done a woeful job in the departments of drafting and player development? Why are you multiple years into the rebuild now addressing this? That to me is so strange. The timing of this does not make much sense. Usually when a team falls off a cliff like the Nats did in 2020 and 2021, that's when the change happens. You know, it's like you realize you have a problem and that's when you start to attack the problem. That's when you fire people, you bring in new people and, you know, you try to move forward in a new direction. In this case, nobody got fired. Everyone stayed on. And now multiple years into the rebuild, oh yeah, I guess maybe we should make some changes in terms of scouting and in terms of how we conduct our drafts. That is so odd. That's not the way that this stuff usually goes. So that part of it to me is bizarre. I, I still come back to this. If you are not satisfied with the job that the team has done in drafting and player development, why are you keeping the guy who has presided over all of this in Rizzo? Like that to me is still strange. If you feel that way about the way things have gone with the drafting and player development, to keep the guy who has presided over it, 
I don't know, that doesn't seem in accordance with the way that you're feeling. So, you know, there's that part of this too that is so strange. So much of this, of course, is about the sale and the team being for sale. And it doesn't appearing that we'll have a resolution to that anytime soon. And so this thing that we talked about on the last show of this uh, marriage between the learners and Rizzo, and they sort of need each other right now because, you know, Mike isn't necessarily going to get another job as a GM with another team. And the learners in trying to sell the team aren't necessarily going to get themselves a great new GM if all of a sudden that job becomes open. And so you sort of have these guys almost being forced to stay with each other. But that's not healthy. That's not <laughs> that's not the way to run a truly good baseball ops department. There was something else in the Rosenthal report that I found particularly interesting. And it had to do with how the learners determine their budgets. Consider this, quote, the salaries of even veteran scouts amount to a pittance for a franchise valued at an estimated $2 billion. The learners, however, long have been known for their frugality in certain areas. Most teams set a budget for baseball operations without mandating a specific headcount. The lead executive can meet budgets simply by reducing major league payroll. But the Nats, according to one source with knowledge of their operation, separate major league payroll from their front office budget. So while ownership might have been comfortable carrying a $101 million opening day payroll, more than half of which was devoted to Strasburg and fellow pitcher Patrick Corbin, it still could be hell-bent on cutting costs in other areas. Such is learner logic, and don't try to understand it, end quote. (laughs) So I thought that that was interesting from Ken Rosenthal. And I think it does raise the question of, you're getting rid of all of these people. Will you be replacing these people? And will you be replacing these people with better people? Spending on front office matters. Spending on infrastructure matters. If you're going to keep up in the information arms race that goes on at MLB right now, an arms race that is led by the team that the Nats are currently playing, the Dodgers and the Braves and teams like that, you've got to spend on people in your front office. Are the learners going to be willing to do that? Is ownership going to be willing to do that? I think there are extreme questions in that regard right now. Yeah, 100%. You're right about all that. You know, what you just outlined there is not anything new. Really, since the early days of their ownership, we've talked about how they do spend big money on big name players, but they can nickel and dime with the best of them when it comes to behind the scenes stuff in the front office, whether it's personnel or even equipment or, you know, anything else that you need to run a baseball team and that those are kind of two separate entities in their mind and not connected. And so that's always led to this, you know, debate, I think, along among a lot of fans of the, are the learners cheap or not? And you have some people saying, well, they've had one of the highest payrolls in baseball for a long time back during the winning days. And, you know, how can you be cheap if you do that? And then other people saying, yeah, but they nickel and dime their scouts and their front office and all this. So I feel like this isn't a new dilemma or new situation that's being presented. This is kind of how they've operated for a long time. We don't have a clear picture yet of what the end resolution of this is in terms of the staffing and the personnel. So I do want to see how that shakes out, whether they are replacing everyone either with comparable people in those same positions or creating new positions. Maybe there is going to be a whole new analytics wing that's taking up some of these jobs that they're losing on the scouting side. I don't know the answer to any of that. But, I mean, you know, think about a couple of years ago, you said, so they, they let the scouting department pretty much stay intact for the last few years, even as they began the rebuild. What they did do a couple of years ago was overhaul player development. And the idea or reading between the lines was essentially them saying, we think our struggles to turn draft picks into big leaguers is not because we are drafting bad players, but we are not developing them into big leaguers. And so we are going to beef up our minor league staff, coaches, instructors, and everything, and try to do it that way. And a couple years later, we're saying, okay, has that worked or not? I'm not so sure. Well, okay, we already did that side of it. Well, now it's time to go to the scouting part of it. And maybe that has been the problem all along. So it's been kind of piecemeal over several years. But if this all goes through and if there's more to come as we think there could be, then maybe that's the second phase of this overhaul. 
it is fascinating because how often do you see an organization do that much, make that many changes, and still have the same person in charge at the top of it? And I think that is unusual, but we have to acknowledge it's an unusual situation, both because you have a GM with a long track record who won a World Series, and you have an ownership group that has not been able to clearly state what its long-term intentions are. And so it has felt like everybody's just sort of going year to year right now until we know whether the learners are selling or not. But the overhaul in player development a few years ago, wasn't that more reassigning people in the organization as opposed to hiring new people? Uh, yes, uh, there were new hires on like the coaching levels that a, a lot of that, that kind of stuff and adding new positions of analysts, you know, some behind the scenes stuff, some nutritionists and physical therapy kind of people to that, as well as the on-field baseball instructor. So there was a beefing up of what they acknowledged was a player development system that was not as deep as most organizations had. So some of that, but also some moving around, you know, D. John Watson, who had been one of those special assistants, was then put in charge of player development and has taken a different approach to it, I think, than they had in the past. So yeah, it was some of that. And, you know, we'll see. I don't know the answer yet, but they're clearly going to be having a new scouting director, amateur scouting director, going into next year. Are they going to promote someone who's already been within their system, who's been doing this before? Or are they going to go outside and bring in somebody new? I don't know the answer to that yet. Yeah. And again, if you were going to have a new scouting director, it seems to me that would have made sense two years ago. <laughs> you know, off having multiple drafts here in recent years in which you've had these super high picks. And instead, it's like, well, no, those picks have been made. And the rebuild is in you know full force, and we'll see what happens with it. But the time to do this to me was two years ago. Now, it's just strange. The funny thing, ironic thing of it is, if you're really talking about where have they failed in the draft, it's like 2012 to 2019 or so, kind of the run of the team being great, and then they were not drafting and developing good players. It's still early to know since then how they've done, but there are better early returns on these last few years of drafts than there were prior to that. So the timing, yes, is a little odd that like, not that anybody wouldn't have drafted Dylan Cruz in that position, but Chris Klein just drafted probably their best prospect they've had in a very long time. And now he's going to lose his job when it's not like he made a mistake on this year's draft. I don't think anybody believes. The winds of change are a-blowing at Nationals Park. And uh, this has been some run. I mean, again, Last 48 hours, crazy. Last few weeks really have been crazy. A lot of stuff happening off the field with the Nats. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on our website too, NatsChatPodcast.com, at which you can buy a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat Podcast music. Visit TimNewmark.com. Next up for the Nats is Game 2 of this three-game series against the Dodgers, 4.05 p.m. on Saturday. Jake Irvin will be the Nats starting pitcher. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. The pitch swung on, hit in the air to deep right center field. Back goes the right fielder, and it's going to be over the head, off the wall, and this ball is gone. Goodbye! It is a home run for Kbert Ruiz, bouncing back onto the field. Zoom goes Ruiz.